Ectoplasm Advent Day 18, Die Hard. I've got a friend, Al, who basically, whenever you ask him what he thinks about movies, he says, well, it was pretty good, but it wasn't Die Hard. And that is reasonable, because Die Hard is um, a fantastic movie start to finish. Uh, and, and we watch it regularly, particularly as a Christmas movie, because Die Hard is a Christmas movie. So we were watching it last night with the regular movie night posse. Um, that was actually something we started around the pandemic, where we, we got this, like extended group of friends who we, we all play games together um a lot of them feature on the black armada tales podcast if you're interested they do actual plays um but anyway yeah die hard is christmas movie we watched it last night two things struck me well three things actually um the first one is that uh this is the only good die hard movie and the the thing about this is it's based on a book and so it has a really great plot structure. It's very tight. Um, I've never read the book, so I don't know if the book actually stands up to Die Hard itself. But um, it it has been built on a foundation of a sort of a tightly written story with a really excellent premise, which I don't think any of the other films have. And you, if you, uh, the second one, Die Hard Two, Die Harder, was based in an airport, and so it was again it was a siege scene. Um, Die Hard 3 was all about the brother of Hans Gruber, played by Jeremy Irons, chasing Bruce Willis around a city and making him do ridiculous tasks. And that was not memorable at all, which is a shame because I really dig Jeremy Irons. Die Hard 4, um, was that Die Hard with a Vengeance? It was the one where he jumped onto a, a Harrier jet. Um, that was the one with um, Timothy Oliphant as the bad guy. I like Timothy Oliphant a lot. He, I think he was great in Deadwood. Um, I think he was even better in the Santa Clara Diet, where he sort of showed he's got proper comic timing. He was, he was really great. But um, I thought he was still really good in that. But again, Die Hard 4 was like sort of, I felt only so-so. The thing about the Die Hard series is you gradually witness the collapse of John McClane's life and you have such hope at the end of Die Hard he's been estranged from his wife and he's come over and that he's been subjected to the, the, the heist in Nakatomi Plaza and he ends up saving his estranged wife, killing the bad guys, making a new friend and um, and you, you really think, oh, that's so maybe his life will actually work out from here. Maybe he's seen the light. When you get to Die Hard 4, you find out, actually, yeah, he's estranged from his wife and um, he's stalking his daughter and vetting her boyfriends. And by the, the one after that, that was the one where he teams up with his son in Russia. I remember watching on a plane and it was okay, but not particularly exciting. And it's obvious there's some... Um, father-son resentment going on there his son's become a special forces operative of some sort um and it was just so dispiriting where i don't really care about john mcclain if he's chosen to go down a path where he's actually an absent father and no, doesn't have much emotional intelligence and that's the frustrating thing because when you watch the start so this is the second revelation about die hard when you watch the start um, I realised, you know, it's not all about John McClane. It's about the whole situation, and it's about his partner, Holly, Gio Holly Gennaro, um, also Holly McClane. I think her first name's Holly. I hope I remember that right. Um, and 
when the two of them see each other after having been apart for six months for very legitimate reasons, she went out to LA because she had a career opportunity of something she's really good at. He stayed in New York because he felt tied to the job and he had to put people in prison. Um, and, uh, but you got the sense that actually by the end he'd worked out what really mattered to him and what and where the balance was. And yeah, so the other Die Hard movie is big anticlimax. But anyway, yeah, when you um oh, I'm going all over the place for this. When you see the opening scenes, which include a lot of stuff, you, you see the, the bad guys' trucks ominously rolling up, you know that they're about to do something. You see John McClane being picked up from the airport, but you also see what's going on in Nakatomi Plaza. And then you have this moment where he and Holly come face to face after being apart for six months, and it's obvious that there's so much that they haven't said that they want to say each other. There's a real chemistry there, a real connection. And I, I thought it was, like, really beautiful. Um, it was also... This is around the time when Bruce Willis was doing Moonlighting as well, wasn't it? And so it's, it's, it's a younger guy without the sort of absurdly macho white guy shaved head. Um... He he just had a normal receding hairline like everybody else, and um, he he just had a great deal of humanity and likability about him. Um, but and this is the role playing bit, the third bit that it occurred to me is that okay, um, there is there is something to be said about a scenario where you are the fly in the ointment and you are going up and down all over a map trying to foil the activities of your opponents going to be hard to do in a role-playing game you know easy to do in a video game if it's just you against the many but um harder to do that with a team now you could flip it the other way which says we're doing a heist and we've got this one person who isn't cooperating we're trying to hunt him down uh, him or her mm -hmm. uh we're trying to hunt them down and then that could be a, a sort of an interesting thing where the the players actually have to come up with strategies to trap what is actually quite an elusive character who can disappear into uh, uh, anywhere in the building. But what's even more interesting is the side characters and, and their lives. And so I was wondering what it'd be like to play as a hostage in, in the Nakatomi Plaza takeover. Um, what sort of conversations would you have whilst you have armed guards? What is the game there? I mean, one of the things that happens in the middle is that Holly takes a, a leader role where she engages with the um, the hijackers, the terrorists, whatever you mean, Hans Gruber's crew, and she says, "Well, look, you get more goodwill from people if you start allowing them to have comfort breaks. We've got a, a pregnant woman here. If you show a bit more of that, you'll have an easier time controlling things." And I thought that that was a, that was a um, obviously it's a, an example of excellent leadership. It's also an example of excellent character exposition and a you know a strong character who isn't just the the lead guy with the gun but there are other characters there as well and you're going to wonder how are they going to behave in the evolving situation they're not sure if they're going to survive the night so what do they do what do they say to each other you know what sort of confessions do they make um, you know, how do they bear their soul? Do, do they do that? And when they do it, do they do it to other colleagues? And is there history with those colleagues? Do they do it to their um, their captors? You know, they, they and and they have some sort of Stockholm syndrome. So that I thought would be an interesting thought experiment. Um, given that we all know how the setup of Die Hard is, mostly 
it's kind of looking at the parodies that go alongside it that are going to have any novelty. Of course, there's the other thing to look at, which was um, the external view about what's going on. And this I thought was quite interesting. And th th there's one thing with the reporting crews and what they should and should not be reporting on. And there's the general incompetence of both the local police and the FBI, who you know, mostly they get punished for their stupidity. And then there's also the other characters on the outside, who um, you know, John's lifeline, the one police officer who's supposedly been assigned to death duty after a long time ago he accidentally shot a child. And of course, at the end, he's in a life or death situation where he draws his gun and fires to protect John and Holly. And, um, you know, that's a, a satisfying conclusion to the arc. One of the things I did note there was the um, the visual non-auditory cues, like flashes of light on top of the Nagatomi Tower. And, of course, you know, that, that was the firefight that was happening on the roof. Well, I don't need to tell you, there are lots of little details in that first movie. Aside from saying anything about the actors... Um, about about the quality of acting with throughout really the characters you know the the sort of um, the affable head of the Nakatomi Corporation and the slimeball who wants to try and get into Holly's pants the various members of Gruber's team and of course Gruber himself played by Alan Rickman I don't really think I need to convince you that Die Hard is a good movie well, you might argue with me and say, actually, Die Hard's crap for these reasons, in which case, you know, fill your boots. Anyway, um, I'm going to call it a close there, and I am going to open the next thing in the advent calendar. Oh, there's a jumper. Now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. Oh, festive. All right, speak to you later. Bye-bye. Plasma Podcast. Words by Ralph Lovegrove, music by Chris Zabriskie. Find out more at fixplasm.net.